It's Tuesday, November 22nd, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The turtling of a once great nation, Sky News Australia has details. Japanese officials are trying to spark a new fashion craze to avert a potential power crisis. Residents are being encouraged to wear turtleneck sweaters in order to cut their energy use this winter. Uncowed by the cold, wear a cow neck. But if it feels arctic in Osaka, turtle up. Turtlenecks, or as they're called in Japan, Taturneku. Taturaneku. I was hoping it would be Gamaraneku, but Taturaneku are being advised. Oh, it's a better word than what the English call them, polonecks. But when an energy crisis hits and the government advice is of a sartorial nature, it's never really that inspiring. Anytime they give you advice, your dad lobbed at you when you complained that it was cold, can inspire faith that the government, the federal government, is working with suppliers, protecting consumers, ensuring the system is going smoothly. I mean, global warming? Eh, take a cold shower. Monkeypox? Rub some dirt in it. According to Bloomberg, Tokyo officials had other strategies for combating the coming cold, quote, huddle in a single room when watching television, or refrain from using toilet warmers in order to cut power use. So Russia invades Ukraine, supply chains are disrupted. You knew you'd feel it eventually, but you never thought you'd feel it there, in the toilet. The long-term fix, officials advocate, is a greater embrace of nuclear power. Nuclear plants have sat idle in Japan since the Fukushima disaster in 2011. But there was some recent polling that showed for the first time Japanese favor more than disfavor a return to nuclear. So they're generally warming to the idea, but just barely. More along the lines of a tattered Taturaneku than a fully powered toilet seat. On the show today, I spiel about the minefield whenever you try to cover the issue of medicalization and gender-affirming care. But first, Chris Hansen, late of the To Catch a Predator series, is back with a new network called the True Blue Network, no blue and blue, and a podcast that reflects on all the predators he's caught. That is the title, Predators I've Caught, not me, Chris. In this conversation, we of course talk about predators, the ones he's caught, the ones he hasn't, but we do have some off-putting details that come along with such a talk, so I just wanted you to know about that. And I also wanted to ask Hansen, and you will hear in the interview, questions about his methods, the ethics of what he does, and the effectiveness of his project. Chris Hansen, up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where uh, it got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying, 
unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't talk to strangers. It's a basic rule of safety every parent tells their child. But if there's a computer in your home, it's possible that your children have been talking to strangers. Tonight, we're going to show you just how dangerous it can be to let your child surf the web alone. And how quickly a stranger, maybe a sexual predator, can go from chatting with your teen in cyberspace to knocking on your front door. How easily can it happen? We found out in a Dateline hidden camera investigation. We want to warn you, some of what you're about to see and hear tonight is graphic and explicit. Here's Chris Hansen. Chris Hansen is the title character in Predators I Have Caught with Chris Hansen. Luckily, he's the last of the title characters, not the Predator. You know Chris Hansen from Dateline NBC. In his reporting career, he's won 10 Emmys, five Edward R. Murrow Awards. He has a raft of mostly Predator-based content like Crime Watch Daily and To Catch a Predator, which we mentioned, Hansen versus Predator. There was Have a Seat with Chris Hansen, which stemmed from a bit of his catchphrase when he would catch the Predators. I want to know, and he joins me now so we could talk about how he did it, how he does it, and what does he think about our conception of Predators and grooming and the law. Chris, welcome to The Gist. Thank you, Mike. So take me behind the scenes of when you were with NBC, what was the apparatus, legal and otherwise, to make sure that you weren't just going off all vigilante style, either putting yourself in danger or leading to sting operations that maybe shamed someone but had no criminal effect? Well, that's a great question. And as you can imagine, there are a lot of moving parts. And we have transitioned along the way from the very, very first time we did an investigation 18 years ago in Bethpage, Long Island, to the one we did just you know a few weeks ago for the new crime streaming network, True Blue. But in the beginning, we didn't collaborate with law enforcement. We merely collaborated with an online watchdog group called Perverted Justice. They had been in existence for you know a couple of years. And they would identify a man who was willing to meet a child for sex, and they would post his identity on a website. And I figured if we could combine that with our ability to wire a house with hidden cameras and microphones, it could be compelling. So I'm on my way out to this house in Bethpage, Long Island, and I'm daydreaming and stuck in traffic thinking, what if I've just wasted you know tens of thousands of dollars of NBC's money and nobody shows up? With that, the producer calls in a panic. Two guys are due here in 45 minutes. Where the hell are you? You're stuck on the LIE. Yeah, no, I was trying to get over the Throgs Neck Bridge. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, in, in a rail car. I'm panicked. So, you know, in two and a half days, 17 guys show up, uh, surface in this investigation, including a New York City firefighter. So this happens and we air it. And, and actually, interestingly, for a time, it sat on the shelf and we were tweaking going back and forth because we really didn't, you know, management and executive producers weren't sure how to handle this. It was compelling stuff and interesting, important. 
but uh, you know, it aired and we did it again in Washington, D.C. And then we began to collaborate with law enforcement because it was rather unfulfilling to see these guys just, you know, walk off into the wind. And it was socially responsible to, you know, make sure they face justice. So from then on, we collaborated with law enforcement. But behind the scenes, you know, there are people who are doing the chatting. Uh, there is security for the crew, myself, and law enforcement is nearby and sometimes in the same house, the way we do it today, to make sure that things are safe and that the guy is arrested. And, and you know, in the middle of it all, I try to have an interaction interview with the alleged predator and try and get into his head and figure out what the hell it is that brought him into this situation. So that Beth Page sting netted uh, how many did you say? How many predators? 17, 17 guys surfaced in two and a half days. Did it only become TV content or were there any prosecutions off of that? In that very first one, there was only one prosecution. And what made that one prosecutable, not the other 16? I think it stuck out because he was the firefighter mm-hmm. and because you know the feds picked it up and he, he crossed uh, over um, you know boundaries that you know, both in the chat and physically, uh, what he did, he, he sent images of himself, which could be construed as, as, you know, sending pornography to a a minor or somebody he thought was a minor. So your ongoing podcast predators I have caught with Chris Hansen, it's, uh, kind of, it's usual and unusual. It's usual in that there are many of these podcasts that look back at beloved shows actually typically within the time period and the aughts that your uh, that To Catch a Predator took place is a very popular Talking Sopranos podcast and the office ladies talk about the office and it's a similar structure. The host or star of that show talk about different episodes and I guess you would say different guest stars or different guest villains. <laughs> um, that's the that's the format of this show. However, when I listen to office ladies, it's always, you know, the delightful interchange that they had or when I listen to Talking Sopranos. It's talking about what it was like to work with that guest star. With you, it's what it was like dealing with this horrible person. And I'm wondering, except for the money, why you want to go through that again? It must take a little bit of a toll on you. Well, it does. And that's a, that's a great question, Mike. I, I <laughs> Amazingly, it's a little therapeutic for me, to be honest. Um, it allows me to explore some of these dark corners where I've had to go and to further examine what these guys did, what they said, how they groomed someone they thought was a child. And it's like therapy to me. And, and I know that's, that sounds odd, but I've spent you know 40 years you know exploring the dark side of criminal life. I, yes, I've had a chance to do features along the way and some fun things and certainly some adventurous things. But a lot of what I've done has been crime and investigative and in Detroit, some politics, which was criminal many, in many cases at the time. But um, so it is therapeutic. And, it, and also, you know, when I'm doing these interviews with these guys, whether it was 18 years ago, or whether it was, you know, 18 days ago, um, you know, I'm operating a little bit without a net because I, I have some transcripts. I have, in many cases, background on these guys, but you're, you're living in the moment trying to get the guy to talk to you. I mean, anybody can jump out of the bushes and create 10 seconds of dramatic video. That's what not, that's not what this is about. It's about understanding what goes on in somebody's brain to make them do this. Because if you can better understand the mind of a predator, you can better educate 
children and everybody else to to be a little bit safer and be less victimized by these guys. So I do get to immerse myself in the transcripts. I go back and look at all the video. I reach out to the guy and try to talk to them. And, and I'm on the verge of getting some interviews with some of these guys that I think will be very telling. Uh, some of these guys are very angry with me. You know, I had a guy in a telephone conversation tell me that his life was ruined and he thought about it every day in prison. And I said, you know, you can blame me as much as you want, but I'm not the one who got online and told somebody who was posing as a 13-year-old girl that he wanted her to have sex with a dog so that her vagina would be lubricated with the dog's semen before you had sex with her. And then walk into the house and say, where's the dog? Yes. Don't pin that on me that you had a rough go because if I wasn't there and a little girl was, you would have done something horrible to that child and that child would have had to live with it for the rest of their lives. And But it, it is this, it, it, you're right, it, it's dark material, but I think people appreciate, you know, just the effort and the context because so much of it went by so quickly that we can take a look back at this. And, and during the pandemic, um, you know, there were more contacts reported between adults, inappropriate contacts and children than ever before. Uh, the reports made from social media platforms to... Uh, the National Center for Missing and Exploded Children exploded, went up something like 900% during this time period. More kids were online and more adults knew that. And when we started this, you know, we merely had decoys in chat rooms on AOL and Yahoo. Well, today, the number of social media platforms that exist where predators can potentially approach children has also exploded. It's hard to keep track of them. And, and so I think the work is as important as it ever was, if not more important today. So when you go back and reflect, I have heard on the show you talk about that you think that there are different categories of these predators and some really are sucked in because of the availability of the internet and but for the internet, they might not even engage in this activity, whereas others have probably existed throughout time and would want to hurt children no matter what. And you look at them differently and you evince, I would say, something approaching sympathy, but I'll put it to you directly. Upon reflection, do you ever find, have you found in some cases, uh, more sympathy for the predators than you had or at least showed on TV at the time? In some cases, Mike, I do, especially when it comes to some of the younger cases, the guys who are 19, 20, 21, 22, you know, it could be college age. I'm not excusing it. It's a felony. And, you know, at the end of the day, what's the difference between a 22-year-old doing it and a 32-year-old doing it? The damage is the same. But some of these people, some of these guys, uh, you know, suffer from awkwardness and social anxiety, and, and they do get lured into a comfort level on the internet. And you see this drifting and this acceptance of saying things they wouldn't say face-to-face -face that they will say online. It dehumanizes human contact, especially when it comes to sexually charged conversations. And so they blur this line. And in their minds, they think, well, you know, this is a Romeo and Juliet situation. I'm 22. She's 14. You know, in, in, in a couple of years, she'll be legal if it works out and, you know, we can have a happy life together. I think this fantasy exists. And I don't think 
at their hearts and in their souls, they are violent rapists. And I think those are the guys who can get, you know, disciplined and get therapy and, and get back on track. So I have a greater level of sympathy for somebody like that than, you know, the 68-year-old who's posing as a 38-year-old who's already been down the road 12 times to try to meet kids. Or the off-duty cop who walks into our, our sting house and, in uh, mid-Michigan to meet a 15-year-old boy with, you know, lube in his back pocket and three guns in his car. Um, so, yes, I, I, I do understand. And, and, and I think some of those guys have gone on to lead productive lives. And I do not support, you know, some people, some followers of the TCAP, the To Catch a Predator series, who consistently, in some cases, have, you know, uh, tagged some of these people and trolled some of these people online. If, if they've turned their life around, they should get a shot at, you know, some sort of uh, piece about this thing. I know you say that the show is some sort of therapy and use that word colloquially, but without getting too personal, did it, I've talked to many people in law enforcement who do this kind of work and they have to cycle out after a while. Uh, it does, it could and often does cause PTSD. Did any of it really weigh upon you at the time? Oh, sure. I mean, I'd go back to the hotel room or go home and really struggle for a minute on, gosh, you know, did that really, I mean, how could a human being do that to a child? And just to have to recognize that, that this sort of human exists in society is, is shocking to me. But, you know, any of these crimes al along my career, you know, that, that involved children or, or somebody who was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, I mean, it's, it's, they always stick with you. When you lose that sense of empathy or compassion or that ability to be really bothered by something, then, then you're not a good storyteller anymore. And so you never want to lose that. But, but yeah, I, I've had to figure out over the years you know, how to deal with it in a healthy way, how to, you know, process it in some ways, compartmentalize it um, and to, you know, to set it aside when it's time to, you know, be a regular guy and go to Costco or cut the yard and do whatever you do during the day, you know. I'm sure you're aware of vigilante groups or individuals who take to catch a predator as their inspiration. The Washington Post did an article on a guy named Eric Schmutt, who, quote, watched every episode of To Catch a Predator, hosted by Chris Hansen multiple times. And then during the pandemic, he found other YouTube videos and he wanted to get into this game. And he, well, not a game, he wanted to get into this activity. And he did, and he created sting operations. Who were you here to meet? Don't fucking sass me. Are you, like, doing this for, like, to get games or something? Mm. Games, bro. Dude, we're trying to stop mm -hmm. pedophiles. We don't like people. Adults trying to f up with underage kids, dude. So lose the attitude or get pissed off. Usually, law enforcement says, stand down, this isn't your uh, bellywick. But in this case, he and his investigation or use of uh, you know, jump, essentially, he really did jump out of the bushes and put a video on this guy, was introduced in court and they got a conviction based on that. What do you know of and think of this kind of activity drawing you and your show as inspiration? Well, I think there's a place in the world for citizen journalists, and you've seen a lot of people who have, you know, perhaps limited journalistic backgrounds uh, who do podcasts uh, that solve crimes, murders, cold cases. Um, you've seen some of these vigilante groups doing predator things who have caught, you know, 
some pretty prominent people in the entertainment industry. It's fraught with danger. It doesn't have the, the set of controls and, and uh, guidelines in place compared to what we do. And I can tell you that law enforcement doesn't like it because it makes the cases very difficult to prosecute. Has there ever been a woman? Never. So, I, you know, it's, it's a great question. And uh, the experts tell us, the people who study this tell us that when it comes to female predators, you're more likely to see the teacher-student scenario, that female predators are uncomfortable with the anonymity where male predators get off on it. We've never seen it. It's happened. Um, I wrote a book several years ago about the whole experience, and, and, um, and there was a case that we explored in the book, but uh, we've never seen it in any of our investigations. Do you see the overall problem of child predation decreasing or increasing? What do you and law enforcement say about that? I think it's increasing, but thankfully, so is awareness. Um, I, I think it's, it's more on parents' radar than ever before. Uh, and I think there are a lot more discussions. I think there are a lot more um, groups creating awareness. I mean, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children does amazing work in this field. So many other groups do amazing work in this field. And you have a lot of victims, Alicia Kozak, who was, you know, one of the early tragic victims of online sex predators, you know, who, who go out and tell their story and continue to raise awareness. So, so, yeah, the problem is worse because the opportunity is greater. But I think the education and awareness is... is you know, keeping up with the opportunities. So I, I think it's a fair fight, but it's, it's not one where we can say, okay, everybody knows this happens. We don't have to report on it anymore. Chris Hansen has caught predators for Dateline NBC, has talked to predators in his new podcast, and the streaming service True Blue will be available shortly where he continues this. I guess it's become his life's work. Chris, <laughs> thanks so much. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. And now the spiel. I'm going to talk about the substance of the issue that got me kicked off Mastodon. Not the pretext. That was the use of the word activist to describe someone who could fairly be described as an activist. That was yesterday. Today I want to talk about tough issues because I think it's important. That's why I do the gist. That's why I started Not Even Mad. So I linked to a New York Times piece about trans issues. It was objected to by a trans journalist and advocate. That objection was heard. I did get chased from the server. But the bigger issue is an underlying issue. It has nothing to do with one slice of one website and how those policies affected me, your humble host. There are a few issues in media and politics that are third rails. Abortion, it's changed a little bit. About 15 years ago, it began to change. There was less of an impulse and less of a push to give any deference to the anti-abortion side. That was That's what I've been seeing over the last few years. For instance, if you are communicating in a more liberal media, maybe 
what we would call the mainstream media. There's really no cost to openly criticizing the intellectual underpinnings of the anti-abortion movement or of using phrases like pro-choice without quotes or of speaking or writing of concepts like reproductive freedom interchangeably with legal abortion. So that changed a little bit, abortion did. Activists have always tried to make Israel a third rail. Is it? In some milieus, yeah. In media, to some extent, but you know, as far as I could tell, all of the New York Times columnists who write on Israel embody a continuum somewhere between strong support, Brett Stevens, to a sorrow more than anger type tone, Michelle Goldberg. Race has always been fraught. The lines shift. There are new and expanding definitions of what gets regarded as racist and what the consequences are. But now trans issues have become perhaps the most contentious issues there are. Many reasons for that. Trans people have suffered torment and oppression for years, denied access to medical care, degraded. It is still, of course, going on in many states and in the minds of many Americans. Red state governors know this. They're dishonest about the actual facts of being trans and the medicalization of being trans. The second and third biggest states of America might arrest a doctor who performs medicine. It's really, really horrible. And after years of the trans community not getting a break, not even being allowed to be a community, they, or rather some members of the community, are shouting back and redefining concepts. And one thing some of the more vitriolic members are doing are redefining the concept of being anti-trans so broadly as to include reporting or documenting any fact that in any way differs from the preferred message of these most extreme advocates. Let's go to the specific issue of puberty blockers, which the New York Times reported on in a 6,000-word piece by Megan Tuohy and Christina Jewett. The question the piece was answering was right there in the headline, they pause puberty, but is there a cost? Why were these two reporters asking the question? Well, because the argument, disseminated in venues both niche and wide, is that there is no problem with puberty blockers, that at worst the effects are reversible, that there's literally no controversy within the medical establishment about their use. Here is the podcast Science Versus, where host Wendy Zuckerman interviewed psychiatrist Jack Turbin, who at the time was at a fellowship program at Stanford. Let's look at puberty blockers first. They suppress hormones that trigger puberty. The thing about puberty blockers is if you start them, you can always stop them, and then the person's going to go through the puberty they were going to go through anyway. It's reversible. It's reversible. Entirely reversible. A claim often made in science journalism and comedy news programs like John Oliver's on HBO. At the onset of puberty, an adolescent and their family might consider puberty blockers, hormones that delay puberty, and importantly, if that treatment is suspended, then puberty will resume, meaning that this is reversible. Think of it like a pause button, the thing you can't do easily on the HBO Max app. To underscore the lack of danger, really lack of a downside to puberty blockers, Science Versus had psychiatrist Jack Turbin list all the agencies that are on board without qualms. The American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Psychiatric Association, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. I could go on and on. Not controversial at all. No. Science Versus did note that puberty blockers can cause low bone density, but the takeaway was unmistakable. A cost-benefit analysis can only lead to one conclusion. The benefits outweigh the costs. 
By the way, the New York Times article did not come to a different conclusion. They just talked more about the costs. It turns out that top experts are more worried about the costs than the entirely reversible line of argument indicates. Tui and Jewett quote the head of the Bone Research Lab at the Mayo Clinic saying the price of puberty blockers, quote, is probably going to be some deficit in skeletal mass. They write about, quote, emerging evidence of potential harm from using blockers, according to reviews of scientific papers and interviews with more than 50 doctors and academic experts around the world. They note that puberty blockers could plausibly have effects on brain developments. They quote Dr. Sherry Berenbaum, head of a gender research lab at Penn State, saying, quote, if the brain is expecting to receive those hormones at a certain time and doesn't, what happens? We don't know. They make sure to note that all of these experts who spoke of downsides do think the benefits largely outweigh the costs in the right circumstances for the right patients or potential patients. I agree with that too after reading the story. If I had a child who identified as trans or was having some issues around this, I would want to talk to a doctor. I'd want to go in knowing there are costs, and if the doctor didn't mention these costs, I as a parent, as an informed person, would say, well, what about these concerns? These well-documented concerns that are not overstated, that are here in the New York Times. Experts have these concerns. This is all a sign that good journalism was committed. I asked a few people to read the article. All were liberal people who had friends or family with trans-identifying kids. Almost everyone I know, maybe just here in Brooklyn, but almost everyone I know does. The readers included scientists and other journalists, and all were appalled by Republican demagoguery on this issue. But they all found the article useful. It answered questions they had or raised issues they hadn't known about. This article and other reporting by Emily Bazelon and Azine Gureshi at the Times and a big Reuters piece on the unknowns of medicalized interventions. It's all useful reporting, exactly in the tradition of what we need reporting to do. And while the attacks from critics are to be expected, and sometimes they even offer an eye-opening reframing, these attacks have much more of an effect than such criticism normally would, criticism that doesn't reveal errors or doesn't find actual factual flaws with the reporting. This isn't like reporting on Israel or abortion, where journalists know they're going to get incoming from activists, but also know that if the reporting is solid, they'll be fine. It's always been the case that on controversial topics, impassioned voices demand the stories be covered according to their specification. These voices can get mean and intense. Handling that has always been the job of the reporter. But on this issue... The vitriol is working. Every journalist who has delved into this area gets whacked hard. And when they do, they usually find the usual network of support for, that a journalist would expect for just doing his or her job isn't there, isn't there like before. I mean, Reuters and the New York Times certainly stands by its reporters. But the usual network of professional institutions, organizations, other peers, they all know not to get involved. It's not worth it. Everyone in journalism knows that to delve into this topic is to invite a mountain of opprobrium to descend upon you. We are witnessing an extremely effective pressure campaign. It has thoroughly intimidated reporters and news desks. It has successfully defined this area as a stay-away zone, unless you're entirely towing the party line. So you've got to gird yourself for assault just for doing a really good story. 
The story may take weeks to report, but then you have to give yourself weeks to dig out of the avalanche of calumny, even though you've done nothing wrong. Very few people want to undertake such an assignment. You have to be pretty advanced in your career, sure of your status, secure of your next assignment, and in almost all cases, the logical conclusion is it's just not worth it. Give me another assignment. You can do commentary or report on trans issues if you say the right thing, but not always if you say the true thing, and that is bad. Not as bad as murderers in Colorado, not as bad as bills to criminalize doctors' decisions, but please, everyone, recognize that it is happening. And remember when I said the pressure campaign was working? Sure, in the short term it is, but the message has been sent. To accurately document the cost of puberty blockers is to incur professional costs. But actually, in the long term, the pressure campaign is doing a terrible disservice to the correct side of protecting kids who need to transition, of defending vulnerable people from cruelty. If you're shouting down your friends who acknowledge 98% of the correctness of your points, it's going to weaken your base of enthusiastic supporters. I don't know of many moral advances that were gained from a campaign of anathemizing truths. Your allies will stay away for fear of a misstep, but your enemies won't extend that deference. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperu, jeeperu, dooperu, and thanks for listening.